Ever get so mad in an argument that you forget what it's about? Just so focused on the other person being wrong that you forget what your point was in the first place. A couple developments in tech this week bring exactly that to mind. The Trump administration's blacklisting of Huawei and the outcry over FCC Chairman Ajit Pai's blessing for the marriage of T-Mobile and Sprint. Welcome to Fort Knox, Rich Ideas and Powerful People. I am John Fort from CNBC here at the NASDAQ market site overlooking Times Square. Huawei is China's biggest tech player, kind of like what Samsung is in South Korea. Huawei makes phones, they make networking equipment, and the Trump administration says they also make a security risk for U.S. 5G networks. Huawei's leadership is too close to the Chinese government, they say, and so no U.S. company should buy their equipment or otherwise do business with them. I say that's a flawed security strategy, and we're going to talk about why. Joining me to do exactly that, Kevin Delaney, editor-in-chief at Quartz. Kevin, great to have hey, you. Hey, John. So here's my issue with this whole Huawei thing. If Huawei is a security threat, absolutely don't let their equipment in. But to just single out Huawei or even just single out Chinese companies is kind of like saying, hey, nobody with a mask on when they ring the doorbell comes in the house, right? There are lots of different ways that people can breach your security and the US government would know because they've been doing it. I mean, that was the whole Edward Snowden thing yeah. that Glenn Greenwald talked about, the NSA bugging Cisco routers that were heading out to other countries. So, I mean, it makes no sense to just focus on Huawei. Yeah, so there, there are two things that are going on here. The first one is the thing that's really hard to make sense of because the U.S. government really hasn't produced specific evidence that, that, that Huawei is a security risk. There's some story about the Kenyan network, which was installed by Huawei and was sending data at night back to China, but, but the, the details of that are a little vague. And what we've seen is country by country, the governments are going, actually falling in different directions about whether they trust Huawei to be a security risk or not. So there's that thing that's going on. And, and it's a little hard to figure out just because we don't really have enough information. The second thing is obviously the Trump administration's desire to be in conflict with China over, um, over economics. And actually, like, I, you know, what I think is going to be a decades-long uh, conflict and division between business people in the tech sector and other sectors uh, in China and the U.S. What, what and, married people know as, what's this argument really about? Yeah. You know, is, is, yeah. This, is this really about security or is it about something else? No, honey? exactly. Right? And so we've got this profound distrust between these two countries with leaders on both sides who are kind of uh, upping the temperature in terms of, and Huawei happens to be a really great target for Trump to point at and others right. uh, because of the allegations for security around them. And then there, I mean, there's maybe a third thing, which is this existential concern that we all have as uh, 5G comes along, as devices are more pervasive in our lives, our children expose them, artificial intelligence. You've got all sorts of like sort of passive latent anxiety about this stuff. And if the Chinese government is gonna be um, involved in your life at that level, that's a concern that, that I think is this pretty is a easy test. to activate. Are we really concerned? Or, or are we just looking for a scapegoat to, to help us feel better about something? Because if we're really concerned about security, then we should be saying, what are the standards? Okay, N not just for Chinese equipment, but for equipment coming in from somewhere in Europe, for, for equipment that's actually produced here in the U.S. How do I know this is secure? What are the steps that it's been through? Oh, but by the way, uh, encryption, which the government has pushed back against, 
you know, when, when Apple's offering it and it keeps them from spying on the people who, who they need to spy on to keep us safe, they're against it. But when the Chinese do it, right? It's, so, so that's my concern. I'm not sure we're concerned enough about security. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And what's interesting is um, the question then is who is responsible for security? Is it the operators? Is it the government? Is it the manufacturers like Apple, who in some cases are taking matters in their own hands and providing a greater level of encryption uh, than, than others and offering that as a consumer uh, feature? So I think your point is exactly the right one, which, was, which is as we head into this world of 5G, artificial intelligence, machine learning, greater surveillance, um, what gives us confidence that these systems are, are secure? Yeah. And, and you've got to look at the operators, the manufacturers, and actually our government. And then there's also the issue of arbitrariness, right? Like the, the whole idea on what makes America special and what makes our market special is supposed to be this reliance on fact and data and due process to figure things out. Are we going to become what we've accused China uh, of being, which is a kind of win-at-all-cost, nationalistic, benefit ourselves, you know, don't trust the other guy, require them to do things in our country in order to trust them? I mean, is that the answers to win by becoming like we've accused them of being? I mean, I think if you look at history, if you go back 100 years, protectionism was not a recipe for economic growth. And so it's at best a negotiating tactic. Um, the truth is that American technology companies have had very mixed success in China, and the government has actually locked them effectively out of areas of the important areas of the technology company, economy. You just have to look at a company like Facebook, where they effectively can't operate there. Google tried and actually pulled out because it was impossible to operate uh, with the government there. Yeah. So there is some truth to the argument that the Chinese government has been protectionist in, in blocking out American companies from succeeding <laughs> in China. Your, your point is the right one, which is that countering that with protection or protectionism of our own in the form of making it impossible for, for Huawei to do business globally um, is historically not a recipe. That'll show them. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Moving on to more on government and business, uh, T-Mobile and Sprint, a deal in limbo. The FCC and the Department of Justice split on whether or not they should be allowed to get married. Uh, Ajit Pai, the chair of the FCC, saying after John Ledger came out and said, hey, here, here's what we're going to do with 5G as T-Mobile if you let us get with Sprint. We're going to cover more than 90% of the country with 5G, including rural areas. You know, you can count on this. And by the way, we're going to do it at a price that's similar to what we're doing with LTE already. We're not going to raise prices. And here are the penalties and the billions of dollars that we'll pay if we don't do it. And yet, some people are upset at Ajit Pai for saying that he's happy about that. And I'm not, I'm not trying to take a specific side on the details of this case, but I do feel like some of the same people who are mad at Ajit Pai over net neutrality are mad about this. And that I don't get, because for me, Net neutrality is really about broadband competition, yeah. right? If you have lots of different choices and somebody tries to throttle you or block content from you, well, then you can just switch to somebody else. 5G should offer broadband competition. So if you like that idea of affordable broadband, you should want T-Mobile 
to have these targets that they're going to stick to. I'm actually more sympathetic with the critics. And for the reason, just I love basic, it. basic, Tell me why. basic reason. So the U.S. has four uh, wireless networks today. This takes us down to three. There Sprint's are hemorrhaging money, though. How, well, are they really going to invest in 5G? Well, but with that Verizon guy who they got out of the fridge as leftovers. Oh, yeah, no, that's the worst, there? actually. <laughs> um, so the... Uh, so it takes it down to three. There are some promises, as you say, for equipment to the 5G rollout um, in the concessions that, that T-Mobile is offering uh, to be able to make this uh, go through. But the existence of those, of those compromises, uh, the first thing is that companies generally, we've seen this, are really good at making promises up front and then deploying their legal teams over time to actually find ways to define what 90% coverage means. Sure. Like Governments are good at that, too. Everybody's good no, at everybody, that, right? But just everybody to say, with resources. Just to say that like, it's hard to expect literally what they say right now uh-huh. to, to, uh, to be followed through. So you have to, what the critics are suggesting, which is something I think is a good practice as a consumer, is to weight the promises by some some reduction in your expectation that they're actually going to be... Uh, Wait, the promises by some reduction. What, what do you mean? Well, for example, on this, this question of 90% uh, coverage of the, of the country, you can define, as you know, you can define 90% coverage in lots of different ways. And so I think it's... But can you define keeping the price where it is now for LTE in that many different ways? I mean, at a certain point, at a certain point, you, you just can't take anything at face value, and it's a requirement on you, right, to, to hold their feet to the fire. Well, I mean, no matter how you do it. No, it's true. And your point about Sprint, um, your Sprint issue as a business is a very legitimate one. But in general, the guarantee of actually having uh, lower prices is actually having more actors in a market, mm. having more players in the market. There are some concessions, you know. But, but and I'm making this argument, I will point out, as a Comcast employee, yeah. right? Broadband uh, baron extraordinaire exists uh, right now in its multiple on the promise of, hey, even if you go over the top, even if you break up the bundle, we still got broadband. I mean, you know, Comcast is arguably the most at threat yeah. from somebody like T-Mobile entering the market and fulfilling its promises. And, and, being, and being strengthened by the combination with Sprint. Yeah. So you're arguing against your paycheck here, Don. Uh, yes, I am, because that's what we journalists do. That's Good, the, I'm proud of you. Yeah. I was just checking. But, but as a consumer, I am arguing for yeah. broadband, uh, open access to information. And I just think there's a conflict there yeah. between at least those two stated goals. People say, hey, I'm all for choice, net neutrality, having access to content, no throttling. But at the same time, yeah. I want four competitors, even if one of them is limping along yeah. and, and then the other one out of the two isn't able to invest in 5G. Yeah. Well, the other thing, um, just in terms of, to go back to price for a second, the, gar- the promises around price are a three, three-year promises. And so you also have to be comfortable with that time frame. Uh, that the price that they're not T-Mobile is not going to raise prices on their uh, on their service. True. And so, um, is three years long enough? I don't know. But I also feel like you know I can see four years from now and T-Mobile raising my prices because there's less competition and thinking. Actually, I'm not so happy that they merged. Yeah, maybe less competition in wireless, but more in broadband. Give and take. I don't know. Well. It's time. We'll move on. Okay. It's time for digits. few numbers that caught my eye. And what's been a pretty busy week for tech? Siri's got the first. $10. $10. That is the definition of the bear case for the stock in Tesla, where Morgan Stanley thinks it could go in a worst-case scenario. Shares are currently around 200 bucks. What happened to 420? And I don't mean that 
special time of day for some yeah. people. That was the price target. That might have been a reference to a special time of day that, that Elon Musk had set for taking Tesla private seems a long way oh, ago. Yeah. And part of the reason for th this, you know, Morgan Stanley saying it could go this low is just the uncertainty around the Chinese market. Back yeah. to that whole, yeah. you know, Huawei competition situation. Yeah, no, I think, um, I think that's a really good point. I think that Tesla is one of the business, great business dramas of our <laughs> time. You have Elon Musk, who is basically willing the future of this company into, you know, into existence or, or trying to win uh, investors over. He's sleeping next to the production line. They're coming so close on all of their uh, debt obligations and they're using things like having people pre-buy cars so they can get the cash in so that they can ensure that they're liquid to actually completing making, uh, making the cars. And, and they've come through on some key milestones, but uh, generally they haven't. Generally and it's, it's an amazing, amazing product at the same time. Like, the idea that in our lifetimes, we haven't seen a, an auto brand created with this kind of buzz, with this kind of technology, this kind of brand halo. But at the same time, every once in a while I wonder, what's the real value of Tesla if a Jeff Bezos or a Larry Page or Apple has to come in and rescue it? At, mm -hmm. at what point do we start talking about that? And if you don't have uh, Elon Musk as kind of a willing participant in that, I, I don't see the brand dying. Yeah, I don't see the brand dying. The thing that the concern that I have, you know, as a consumer would be the quality of the cars because they're, they've been uh, so overhauling their production, maybe fine when you actually get them on delivery, but a year or two years in, are these cars maintaining uh, the same kind of quality? But, to, but to, to hit your point, like square on, I think Tesla in many ways has already played its role in business and in history, which is to, to show the consumer interest in a high-end car that is electric and to show that this actually can be done. So you have, you have endless automakers now uh, who, are, who have on their roadmaps cars that will be very competitive uh, with Tesla. And I think if Tesla were to go away now, the scenario is very different than if it was two years ago or three years For ago. For sure. But don't count them out. No. Lots of people have lost a lot of money doing that to Elon Musk. All right, let's get the second number, Siri. 396. 396 is the number of students that are going to have their debt wiped clean from Morehouse College. That's after billionaire Robert Smith's announced donation during his commencement speech. An amazing moment. That's great. Uh, I mean, it, it's absolutely great. You yeah. wonder exactly how the, he's going to work out all the details, yeah. but part of being a billionaire is having people to help you work out all the details. It's amazing that his money, the most of it, has come from investing in enterprise technology. Yeah. Uh, you know, from the private equity side, done a bunch of deals, says he'd never lost money on one. Now he's paying it forward into this area that is, I think, emblematic of our times. Yeah, I student think student debt, debt student, the student debt balloon is one of the biggest financial stories of our day. And the extent to which that's affected our workforce and just generally is, a, is we're going to have to deal with like for Did you decades. I did not have student debt. My grandfather was a New York City cop, and he died when I started college. And oh, my um, sorry to hear that. And but actually, his gift to me was that he paid for my college education with his pension. That so. that that is great. I also didn't have any student debt, but I'm starting to realize that I'm old enough now that the kids who are graduating yeah. this year 
were born the year I graduated, and so my experience isn't necessarily relevant to what other people are going through. I don't know what I would be carrying in, in terms of debt or would have had to carry up to this point. If I see this constantly in our workplace where I have young people who come in and say, I know I just started, but I need a massive raise. And the reason is that I'm carrying all this student debt. I can't afford to live in New York City. I can't afford to have a job in journalism. Um, and if you don't pay me more, because I have all this student debt hanging uh, hanging over me. So there's a like, very real impact in the sort of career choices that young people are able to make when they have all this debt. Uh, and, you know, in some ways it's, it's inefficient in the economy for employers to be, uh, to be having to wrestle with that. Like, you could argue that there's a better system in which employers contribute to education directly as opposed to having, um, having their workforces so weighed down by, by So what's debt. the answer? Because um, you, you got a bunch of millennials and younger working for you, I imagine, so you yeah. can't give them all massive raises, no. or can you? No, <laughs> I, I wish we could. But I do have this con uh, conversation constantly, and it's a real pressure. I think the answer is something more structural, which is, there, there are two things. One is that there's some great uh, proposals for uh, relieving the student debt of people who go into careers around public service and that sort of thing. So right. if you, Unfortunately, if you're working, I don't think journalism would journalism necessarily is not, count. Is no. not Especially not in this administration. That, that's a, actually a good thing. Um, there's lots of like personal, basic personal finance uh, education that could be done around people too. Now, just let them manage it more, uh, better. But I think you know, where it leads you is to start thinking about state or corporate financed education, higher right. education. Higher education is so expensive. Um, and can we expect young people? And then where that leads you is, does everybody need to go to a college that costs $70,000 a year? Right. Is that the right thing? State schools used to be a lot more affordable. Uh, they, they still are, but yeah. yeah, as we're tackling the healthcare problem, maybe we can tackle that one too. All right, Siri, final number. 1,500,000. 1,500,000. That's about how many people have signed an online petition to remake season eight of Game of Thrones with, quote, competent writers. This is one of those petitions that's circulating online. We don't know if every one of the people who signed this even watches yeah. Game of Thrones. We do know that 19.3 million people yeah. did watch the final episode uh, in season eight, which is a record for HBO. But to me, this is an interesting uh, conundrum, a juxtaposition in the age and era of streaming. On the one hand, really popular show, really sticky for a long time. On the other hand, how valuable is a property in the library when, you know, you have a season that makes a lot of your fans angry? Yeah. I mean, the critical, we've, we've tracked, of course, we've tracked the critical response to the season. And, and if you chart the, um, the viewer ratings on Rotten Tomatoes and IMDb for the season, they just fall off a cliff with this season. So definitely there is something to the idea that people were, uh, were unhappy uh, with this. I think, I mean, the, the, be the best franchises or the most successful franchises for Netflix and, and HBO and others have been shows like The Office and... Seinfeld and I, <laughs> right, that they I, didn't make that they didn't make and I don't remember every season of those but but my recollection is that there were some pretty crummy seasons of some of those shows and so yeah. I think it, as the season people didn't like the Seinfeld finale no and as the season recedes as the season recedes I think the fan interest in this series overall is going to be still be pretty strong and if you watch the finale of Game of Thrones you know that HBO is teeing up all sorts of other 
uh, series and has other projects in mind that piggyback off the series. Yeah. I, there is that. There's also, though, that I think there are some series and some intellectual property that has more shelf life than others. Like, you know, you, you look at Harry Potter for NBC Universal. See, there's a little plug. Or uh, all that Disney's got. Look yeah. at the Avengers, what they can do in Disney World for that. I don't see a Game of Thrones theme park. Yeah. Right? Come get beheaded, right? That's, yeah. that doesn't happen. It's have more adult, same. you know, it's yeah. sort of more in the adult category. There are some, probably some product extensions, <laughs> like hotels or those sort of medieval fair type things, but it's probably not at the same uh, sort of scale. But, the, but um, you know, one of the interesting stories about IP right now is, the, is Amazon's purchase of the Tolkien uh, IP uh, yes. for. The IP alone is $250 million, and Amazon is putting a billion dollars uh, against actually producing that series. And so, um, however Game of Thrones winds up fitting in, this, these bets on uh, on this IP and the, these uh, hit series are just getting bigger and bigger Tolkien, and bigger. amazing. Like, yeah. that's the OG of yeah. intellectual property in this kind of fantasy realm. Just, I, I have read my two boys, uh, The Hobbit, Fellowship, uh, two Towers. We're about halfway through yep. Return of the King. Nothing like it. All right. Time for Hard Knocks. Breaking down this week's biggest hard luck hot takes in tech. First up, Qualcomm. A federal judge ruling Qualcomm violated antitrust laws, saying the company unlawfully suppressed competition in the market for smartphone chips and used its dominance to exact excessive licensing fees. This comes about five weeks after Qualcomm celebrated the big settlement with Apple, which was, you know, the boogeyman who was hammering down on Qualcomm, saying, you know, we're going to make you lose all these battles in court. 50 lawsuits around the world got nixed. The stock went up. The stock is down big today. Last time I looked, around 12%. We'll see where it goes from yeah. here, but yeah. Tough. Well, you have a judge saying exactly what all of Qualcomm's partners and critics have actually been saying, which is that it's a monopoly and it's used that power uh, basically to force phone makers to buy its chips. So it's been licensing its technology, which everyone kind of needs in the wireless phones. And, and what the judge is saying is that Qualcomm has unfairly uh, used that to, uh, to control pricing and also uh, force people to, to buy their chips as well. And so it's a, um, I mean... <laughs> They're going to appeal. Qualcomm's going to appeal. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to, hard to believe it's already. over. I mean, they are, they are pros when it comes to legal maneuvering. I say never count them out, but that's a hard knock this week. Okay, how about this one? The return of Google Glass, sort of. I, I remember this. This is Google I.O. a few years ago. Sergey Brin, Google co-founder. Glass was going to be the next huge thing. It was such a big thing at this biggest keynote of Google's that he had a bunch of people in a blimp over San Francisco wearing Google Glass, jump out of the blimp, get on bikes, ride off the roof of Moscone West and into the keynote hall. Yeah. And now their big marketing line around Google Glass from the enterprise is, hey, it's even cheaper than HoloLens. Yeah. Well, Google got it wrong. They started with consumers. And actually what Microsoft has shown with HoloLens is actually some of the most interesting applications for this technology, for the augmented reality uh, technology, are actually uh, industrial, um, industrial applications and business applications. And so Microsoft is, has these super interesting applications where you basically learn to assemble a plane by using augmented reality and, uh, and factory scenarios. It's, they're really like impressive for how this works for training. 
Google is now following Microsoft. The challenge for Google is that Microsoft is, is at its heart an enterprise company and actually kind of started at the right place. Isn't that amazing that we're talking about Google? Everything you just said yeah. about what Microsoft is doing right and Google did wrong is the argument that people made about Microsoft about 10 years ago. Yeah. Uh, it just shows how, how quickly When Microsoft was focused on enterprise. I mean, the, 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 the fortunes of these companies. In fact, I think Microsoft rightly has kind of acknowledged its focus. It's not making phones. It's not trying to get Bing to compete with Google search. It's not, it's actually focused on the enterprise. And ultimately, that's a good business. I remember being at a Churchill Club event in Silicon Valley, I don't know, 10 years ago, Larry Ellison criticizing Microsoft for exactly that, saying, hey, you got to pick consumer or enterprise. Yeah. You can't do both. He was wrong, by the way. Yeah. Microsoft is doing both, but I think Satya Nadella has set out a framework where they're enterprise first yeah. and consumer as a driver for that. Uh, pretty smart. Finally, GM dramatically scaling down its ride-hailing service, or really ride-sharing service, I should say, Maven, closing operations in eight out of 17 of the markets it operates in. This is interesting to me because it was supposed to be one of those zip car yeah. type, get a car when you need it, uh, operations. And in theory, it should be thriving in this era yeah. because the whole idea is you don't need a car full time. And they had opened up you know, a, a Maven gig subsidiary that was supposed to be about people who want to drive for Lyft or Uber but don't have a car. Not working out. Why do you well, think? the premise of it is that you're, you want to borrow your neighbor's car, effectively, or strangers who you don't know wherever you are. And so they set up this whole system so that you could borrow someone else's car, like in, in an individual's car. And the premise of it is that renting a car is such a hassle that you'd much rather uh, rent some random stranger's car. I'm not sure, I don't, as a consumer, I don't totally get that. I don't actually think renting a car is that much of a hassle. You, you know, we've all had the experience. You go to a car rental at the airport, and if you've done everything right, you just pick up your car and, and go. And the idea of actually renting some random person's car off the street, uh, I don't know, it just never... Yeah. It never Depends quite... how clean that person... But I think there's another element here, yeah. because Lyft has this program where they rent D directly to drivers. Yeah. That's not working out so well either, and partly the drivers are saying it's too expensive. Yeah. Like they, they can't make any money out of it. And it seems to me like the ride-hailing services and their investors have skewed the economics of driving. 100%. It just doesn't, it, it doesn't pencil out. And no. so the demand that should be coming if, if the economics work to drive, they're not flowing into Maven and they're not able to make all 17 cities work. And so I think Uber had this program in Colorado with Dollar Rent-A-Car, and so you could rent a car from Dollar and then drive for Uber. Mm -hmm. The problem was you couldn't actually make an, a living wage. You couldn't make money off of it because car rental companies are by far the best people in the world at pricing the depreciation of the car. So they figure out, like, you ride 100 miles, they know what that costs in terms of the, you know, the lifetime of the car and that sort of thing. Right. When you actually calculate that properly, as Dollar has done in this instance, it's impossible to make money or enough money to live or more, your know, minimum wage or uh, as an Uber driver. And so they expose the real economics of Uber and actually how bad they are for drivers by tapping into some of these car rental things. And yeah. then they wonder, like, why didn't it work? Well, it was obvious from the beginning. Well, I wonder what's going to happen 
when the money, the big pot of money from investors goes away from these ride-hailing services. I mean, maybe, maybe what will happen is that the prices of, of ride-hailing will go way up, the quality will improve, perhaps, uh, maybe we'll use the services less, but the drivers will actually be able to make a living. But as long as Lyft and Uber, et cetera, are subsidizing the price of this to try to get everybody using it, we won't know. You have two subsidies. You have Uber and Lyft, and then you have the drivers themselves who are not, who are not, uh, who are not factoring the deep depreciation in their own expenses in a way that would allow them to really have a living wage. So my bet is that the prices will actually over time have to go up. The countervailing question is self-driving cars. So if you take the, right. If you take the drivers out of the equation, and I believe that's actually a ways off. All Me these too. experiments you've seen indicate that people are too optimistic about how, how soon in real-world environments we're going to have a massive self-driving cars. Yeah. But we're going to have self-driving semi-trucks and public buses yeah. long before we in, have the in cars. In dedicated so lanes. In dedicated lanes, yeah. exactly. And then we'll know that it's about five years off. Yeah. <laughs> Kevin Delaney, thank you. Always great, great. Super to job. have you here. And that'll do it for Fort Knox. We will see you next week. Same time, maybe. Same place, perhaps. <laughs> we'll see you next time. I'm John Fort from CNBC, and this has been Fort Knox, rich ideas and powerful people. Subscribe wherever fine podcasts are distributed. Check out the reviews on iTunes. Leave me a note. Also, subscribe to the Fort Knox series on LinkedIn. That's brand new and a great way to keep up with the trends I'm seeing both on this Fort Knox show and in my other work on CNBC. That's also the absolute best way to be in touch with me. Leave a comment on the series. Also, subscribe to the Fort Knox channel on YouTube, F-O-R-T-T-K-N-O-X.com slash YouTube. Matter of fact, you can go to YouTube now and see video of these conversations. Or you can go to the CNBC apps on Apple TV or Amazon Fire TV and find Fort Knox in the featured area. Meanwhile, share this, tell a friend, drop me a note on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, or FortKnox.com. And as always, thank you for lending an ear.